Well, good morning, C4. How's everyone doing today? Well, it's a real privilege for me uh, to be speaking this morning uh, on Sunday morning. Uh, we're continuing on in this great Ephesians series that we've been doing, and it's really, it's really been an incredible series. Uh, I don't know if you remember back pre-Christmas, Pastor John kicked off this whole series and, and began to talk about you know, a theology of God, about God's mission in the world, and about the church. And, and the first half of Ephesians, the first three chapters, was really all about that, about studying God. What is God like? What's his, his movement in the world like? What does that mean? For us as individuals, what does that mean then for us as a church? And then we took the Christmas break, you know, that whole break time in there, and, uh, and then we started back uh, six weeks ago, launching into this part two of Ephesians that we're calling the Church United. Because really, the whole second half of the book of Ephesians, starting at Ephesians chapter four, is real all practical application of, you know, the first three chapters. Like, so we learn all this stuff about God and about theology and about God's mission in the world and about God's love for the church and about people in the church and, and you know, that the church is, 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 you know, individuals who've been redeemed and have come together. It's not about a, a physical building, but it's about a people who are filled with power and have a mission in the world. So, so what? <laughs> You know, after we learn all of that, what's the practical application? What are the implications for our everyday lives? And in a word, the practical implication is really unity. And, and that's really what this uh, part B of the book of Ephesians has always been about. It's about unity. And what are the signs of unity? What, what does unity look like for you and I? And so here's what we've covered so far in this book of Ephesians in the second half. Uh, Pastor John, uh, for four weeks, you know, went through chapter four and half of chapter five, and he talked about what does unity in the church look like? So, you know, we believe all of this stuff, and, and we say, yep, okay, I'm in. I understand all of the theology. I understand a bit about God and his mission in the world. But what does it then mean? What does unity and mutual submission look like in the local church? And so Pastor John did a great job, four messages, walking through all of chapter four and half of chapter five. And then the next place that we started to look at the implications of unity was last week when Pastor Lori talked to us about the second half of Ephesians chapter 5, talking about unity in marriage. You know, so we believe all this stuff about God, and we've been touched and we've been changed by God, and there's some things, you know, that we need to be doing. So what does unity then look like in marriage? And then what we're going to do today is we're going to touch on two more areas in just nine very short verses, but there's two subjects there. What we're going to talk about today is what does unity and mutual submission look like in the family, and what does unity and mutual submission look like in the workplace? And that's the first half of chapter six. See, keeping the big picture in mind is incredibly helpful to all of us. Like, you see why the scripture addresses these four areas. Unity and mutual submission in the church, unity and mutual submission in marriage, unity and mutual submission in family life, and unity and mutual submission in the workplace. The reason I think that, that Paul addresses these is because if we can get these four areas down, we're, we're pretty much set. <laughs> like if we can really understand what unity and mutual submission looks like in these four areas, then we're really well on our way you know, to living out life as fully devoted followers of Jesus. Last week, Pastor Lori said that one of the toughest places to work out unity and mutual submission is in marriage. And, and I agree with her, and I know a lot of you agree with her. I was here last Sunday morning when Pastor Lori was preaching that, and I, you know, I heard the holy grunts you know, throughout the congregation. Mm, mm, mm. See, we don't yell out a lot. We just grunt, and they're just called holy grunts, and it's okay to do them, all right? So you can do that even this morning. But I would add today that, that absolutely, after trying to work out unity and mutual submission in the church— 
and then trying to work it out in what it looks like in your marriage context, then the next two areas are incredibly difficult as well. And that's what does this mean in family, particularly in the relationship between parents and children, and what does it look like in the context of our workplace? And that's where our text goes to this morning. Now, because of our particular culture, like we really don't get the subversive nature of what Paul is doing in Ephesians. Particularly as he started off in Ephesians chapter 4 and runs all the way down through chapters 5 and chapter 6. See, in the first century, uh, Christians were, were seen as a threat to societal norms. Christianity was a counter-cultural movement. The teachings of Jesus and his apostles were seen as a threat to society in general. But more specifically, the Christians had a bad rap in, in Paul's day because they were actually seen specifically as being subversive in family life and in the workplace. So Paul's writings in Ephesians show that Christians are not a threat. Actually, they're not a threat to the decency and order that existed even in Paul's day in society. And I would add even in in, in today's society. See, Paul didn't come along and he didn't say, you know, because we are now followers of Jesus Christ, we're abolishing marriage. Because we are now followers of Jesus Christ, you know, we're actually doing away with family structures. Now, he does say some things to slavery, and we're going to look at that this morning. But you see, what Paul was trying to say was that, you know, Christians are subversive, but we're subversive in our attitudes and our actions because they line up with God's, you know, royal law to love God and to love people. See, so when you find yourself in circumstance, when you find yourself in situation, when you find yourself in church, when you find yourself uh, married, when you find yourself in a family, and even if you find yourself in slavery, either as a slave or as an owner of a slave, Paul says within those given structures, it's really about how you conduct yourself, and it's really about how you think. It's really about our attitudes in those situations. And so Paul is speaking much more towards the attitude to the individual who finds themselves in those situations than he is talking about the subjects themselves. So let's look. Let's look at what Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, have to say on the impact of unity and mutual submission on family life and in the workplace. And so I would invite you to turn in your Bible if you've got a paper one or navigate there. But all of the verses are going to be on the screen, so you can just follow along in the screens if that's what you'd like to do. In in the first four verses, uh, Paul talks a little bit about unity in the family. So that's where we're going to start. Let me say a few things before we dive into what verses one through four have to say to us. I need to tell you, first of all, that there is lots that has been written on the family and on parenting. And I'm likely not going to add anything new this morning, okay? So if you came anticipating that I had all the answers on parenting, I'm sorry, I don't. Like, I googled parenting this week, and in .72 seconds, 86 million responses came back. So it's going to be 86 million and one, if you want to listen to what I have to say this morning a little bit. And then I went on Amazon, and I looked at Amazon. And did you know that if you just, if you just type into Amazon on parenting alone, there are 89,815 resources for you to use. So I'm not going to add a whole lot new you know, to, to the subject matter. I, you know, but here's what I want to do this morning. Those resources, many of them are great, and some of them are not so great. I want to talk about what God's word says so that at least we have a lens and a filter through which to read what others are talking about. 
The second thing that I really need to say at the start of this morning is this, that in this room, you know, there's a lot of different experiences, styles, joys, fears, and hurts. And I can't possibly understand every one of them, and I can't possibly address every one of your individual hurts and fears and situations and circumstances. What I'm really going to try and do this morning is I'm really going to try and understand what the scripture says and then part of our job in, in community and in our connect groups and as we hang out with one another is to flesh that out and what does that mean then for my particular circumstances. It's one of the beautiful things about being in a connect group is we get to listen on Sunday morning to the word of God and we, we get to understand what the word of God says and then we get to say, okay, now how does that impact me? And we take that back to our connect groups and we do that together. The third thing that I need to say this morning is that, particularly in the first four verses, some of you have no children. And I understand that that's not always by choice. I want to encourage you to listen anyways. Some of what I say this morning will absolutely not be for you, and I recognize that, and I understand that. But I hope in listening that you will grow in your knowledge of the Word of God and that you will grow in your relationship with Christ, and perhaps you could be an encouragement to someone else. Perhaps, you know, you can actually help someone else. So let's talk about unity in the family. In verse 1, it says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Amen. See you next week. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Okay? That's <laughs> what it says. <laughs> if there's ever going to be unity and mutual submission in the family, the expectation of children is that they're obedient. Now, I can see lots from up here. I mean, the lights are quite blinding, but if I start seeing too many elbows, I'm going to call you out, okay? So, you know, let's be gentle with one another this morning. My dad loves to tell the story. It's a kind of an epic story in our family. It's about me. And uh, when we were... <laughs> Why are you laughing? No. Uh, <laughs> when we were still living in Ireland, and I was, I was still quite young. My dad loves to tell this story. See, my dad raised us with what he calls a firm hand. That is open to interpretation. But, and, and, you know, when I would ask him and quiz him about when he would tell us off about Jen and my discipline of our children, his line would always be, well, you boys needed it, but my grandkids don't. And, and I, I still don't understand that. But anyways, we were raised with a firm hand. And, uh, and so obedience was actually non-negotiable in my immediate family for me and my two younger brothers. It was actually a non-negotiable. And my dad, you know, loves, you know, to defend his position on that because one day when I was quite young, we were playing, I think we were playing in a park or something, and we were playing soccer, and the ball, you know, was kicked off the soccer field and ran out onto the street, and I went running between two cars, you know, totally focused on getting the soccer ball, and my dad just yelled, David, stop! And he said, I stopped. I stopped dead in my tracks. And a car went, you know, just flying by. See, I didn't have that perspective. He had that perspective. The, the point is, obedience was vitally important. Obedience likely saved my life that day. And in Paul's day, obedience of children was the norm. It was absolutely the norm. I know it's not the norm necessarily in the society that you and I live in today. But what Paul adds here to obedience is that it is right in the Lord. Now, there's a couple of ways that we can understand this. There's a couple of ways that we could actually take that this morning. You know, one of the ways that we could look at it is this way, is that, you know, obey your parents because they're Christians. Like what Paul's trying to say here is, uh, you know, obey your parents in the Lord. If your parents are Christians, you should obey them. And the inference would be, if they're not Christians, then you shouldn't obey them. But I, I really don't think that's the way that Paul wants us to take this. The other way that we can understand it is this. Obey your parents because you, child, are a Christian. 
Obey your parents because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is undoubtedly, you know, he's talking about non-adult children. In my, I think it's what he's got in mind here. Now, if children are to be agents of unity in the family, one of their primary responses, actually it's one of two primary responses, must be obedience to their own parents. Now, of course, when parents ask children to do things that are illegal, immoral, or ungodly, they're not to blindly follow them. Even from an early age, you know, children have to take increasing responsibility for the choices that they actually make. But, but the thing that Paul is, 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 is saying here is as he addresses, first of all, the children in the family, he's saying, look, children, and especially ch- Christian children, and if you're a, a Christ follower here this morning and you're a child, I'm not sure how you get here and not be a child, but if you're here and you're a child this morning, then one of your primary responses to ensure unity and mutual submission in your home is obedience to your parents. I remember when Nick was about four years old. Nick is our second oldest son. When he was about four years old, um, he, was, he was in the kitchen one day, and, he, and Jen was working away. I think she was making supper at the time, and you know, Nick was bugging her, Mommy, I want a cookie. I want a cookie. And Jen's like, no, you can't have a cookie. It's too, it's too, close, you know, it's too close to supper. It's too close to supper. And, and she said to me, she said, I, and then I, I look, you know, after I've told him no several times of getting the cookie, and the kid is spinning circles in the kitchen. Like he's just, you know? And you're like, what is, what is up with this kid? Like, seriously. And so finally, he stops spinning circles, and he's like, oh, like, you know, like this. And he says, see, I made your house spin. <laughs> see, that's not the kind of obedience that we're looking for, right? Like, and, and, and if obedience is the action that Paul is speaking to, then he goes on and he says that honor is the attitude that is behind the obedience. Look at verses 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. If children are to do their part in maintaining unity and mutual submission in the family, they need to honor their parents as well as obey them. Now Paul quotes the fifth commandment as a reminder that honoring parents was an essential foundation for God's covenant people as they entered the promised land. It's the first commandment with a promise. And... and, and you know, this is not, this is not saying, and, and even the, first, uh, sorry, the fifth commandment is not saying that, that if you honor your parents and you obey them, you're guaranteed to live into you know, like three digits. You've got to at least reach 100 years old, right? What Paul is saying is, remember the context of the fifth commandment. The children of Israel have come out of slavery. They've come out of Egypt, and they're being brought into a promised land, and God has to establish some real fundamental ground rules as they enter into the land. And what... God was intending there, when he, when he said it to nation Israel, and as Paul, you know, takes it and applies it to the Ephesian church, is this, as you enter the promised land, look, if, if children are obedient and honor their mothers and fathers, then you get unity and mutual submission in the family, and things go much better for you. They go much better at home. And as we... we you know, as we, as we study the ancient times, we, we know that parents, and I'm going to mention this in a second, you know, particularly fathers, had, had literally, you know, life or death of their children in their hands, and it was perfectly legal. And, and what Paul is trying to communicate here is that it has been part of the heartbeat of God's, you know, since, since ancient times, that children are to be obedient and they are to honor their moms and dads. 
I think it's really interesting and quite shocking, I think, that in Romans chapter 1, when, when Paul is going down through you know, this, this downward spiral of society, when he's talking about just how society gets worse and worse and worse and worse, that in the, included in this is disobedience to parents in a list that I think would make a sailor blush. See, there's something about obedience and honor on the, on the part of children towards their parents that is vitally important in maintaining unity and mutual submission in the family. Well, having talked about children for a little bit, Paul now shifts and he talks to fathers. In verse 4 it says this, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The word for fathers could be translated parents. And I think if you're here this morning and you're a single parent, which, was, which would be something that would be totally foreign to the Apostle Paul, but is very, very clearly you know, a modern-day situation, a modern-day phenomenon, I, I think it would be okay for you to think, if you're a single parent, that this applies to you. But Paul, very much in his day, had fathers in mind. Here's why. Fathers, not mothers, had legal control over their children and were responsible for their, for their upbringing from about age seven on. Now, girls didn't normally receive education in Paul's day. Girls were, were taught the things of home by mom and by grandma, and they, they were just taught those kinds of things. And I think it's very, very subversive and very countercultural that Paul does not use the word boys here when he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. He intentionally includes girls in that. Again, the subversive and the freeing and the empowering nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the Greco-Roman world of the first century, the power of fathers over their children was almost unlimited. They determined whether a newborn baby lived or died. That newborn baby would be presented to the father, and if the father didn't like that child, if there were any defects in that child, the father had the right to throw that child out of the family. Most of them were then abandoned or killed at birth. Fathers could and did sell their children, especially girls, into slavery. There were no limits on the punishment that a father could exact on his children. And it's into this world, it's into this worldview that Paul tells Christian fathers not to exasperate their children. Exasperate. It means to make angry. It means to, you know, be overbearing with your children. It means to be nitpicking, be after them, to be needling at them all the time. That's what exasperate means. And one of the things that, you know, when we, it doesn't come out so clearly in the English, but when we, when we look at the scripture in, in the Greek language, we see here that back in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, Paul used exactly the same term there when he says, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Fathers, do not make your kids angry because the repercussions are massive. The implications on that child and on the rest of their life and maybe even for generations to come are enormous. Fathers, don't exasperate. Don't make angry. Don't nitpick. Don't needle your children is what Paul is saying here. Here's something really sobering for us as fathers to think about. And even if you're not a father here this morning, Maybe you're a young man who has aspirations to be a father one day. Listen to this. It's taken, I I found the quote in a book entitled Seven Secrets of Effective Fathers. A seminary professor gave his students a questionnaire when they came in to his class at the start of the semester. And this seminary professor was teaching theology. Theology is just simply the study of God. 
And at the start of the semester, he gave them this, uh, this survey that talked a lot about their relationship with their father. So what was their relationship like with their dad? What was their attitudes towards their dad? What were their experiences like with their dad? How, long, how well did they get along with their dad? How would they rank their dad as a father? All of these kinds of things. And so right on the day one of the semester, did this and then just filed it away. So three or four months later, after they've done nothing but study God... The professor gave them the exact same survey, but he changed all the references of their earthly father to God the Father. Asking the students now, after studying God for four months, what's your relationship like with God the Father? What's your attitudes towards God the Father? What do you think of God the Father? You know, what's your experience has been like of God the Father? And here's what they found. No statistical difference in the answers. It's astounding. Four months of studying only God And yet, these students, these seminary students, were absolutely influenced in their thinking and in their attitudes about God by their earthly fathers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. But if we're not to exasperate them, then what are we supposed to do? What we're supposed to do then is bring them up in the fear and in the instruction of the Lord. See, the home is to be a place of teaching The home is to be a place where Christianity is actually modeled, where where moms and dads are are living out their faith, their obedience to Christ. And kids understand what obedience actually means. They can easily obey their parents. They can easily honor their parents because, because they see this just being modeled right out in front of them. I think in these short verses, you know, Paul has been helping us to understand what unity and mutual submission looks like in our homes. And even if you're not a parent today, like, or even if you're a single parent today, I think there's some things that we can really learn from this. There's some things that you can take back to your connect group in your discussion times and you can talk about. Like, what does it mean for children to be obedient? Like, what does that actually look like? How do we as parents teach and model obedience to our kids? What do our lives need to look like as adults? What does it mean as a young adult to, to be obedient to your parents? Is it necessary for a young adult to still be obedient to their parents? What does it mean for children to honor their parents? Even in old age, what does it mean to honor our parents? How are fathers, or maybe even parents, to teach and train their children? How does the church partner with parents in this? How do you honor the office of parent if your parents are abusive or neglectful or immoral, or if your parents have already died and gone on? Like, these are questions that we need to ask ourselves. What Scripture is doing here. It's helping you and me as Christ followers to create an environment where the whole family can flourish. We're trying to create a greenhouse to grow great kids. We're trying to grow a place just like the church where people can become Christ followers and then become fully devoted Christ followers in the context of the family. See, that job was given to the family long before it was given to the church. The church and family partner together. We work together, you know, to see this happen. What does it look to practice unity and mutual submission in your families? Now, I just want to hit the pause button for a second and just say, like, if you're beating yourself up inside, I really need to remind you of something this morning. And I really want you to hear me on this. There was a perfect parent. Parent who gave his children everything that they ever needed. This parent created the perfect environment, actually, where his kids were safe and secure. His kids actually wanted of nothing. Everything they ever needed was right there. 
this parent provided for him. And yet because of their freedom of choice, his kids made bad choices that ultimately broke their relationship with their dad. See, God the Father placed Adam and Eve in a perfect garden. He gave them everything that they needed, and they still blew it. Some of you need to remember this. You need to remember that our children have choices to make. That our job as parents, and if you're a parent here this morning, our job as parents is to provide an environment, an environment of love and grace, an environment where we live out You know, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control right out in front of our our, our families every day. But we also need to remember that all of our kids have choices. This is how God created us. They have freedom. Jen and I have four boys, as most of you know. Three of our boys, you know, from our vantage point, are trying to follow Jesus as best as they know how. And and we're so thankful for that. And, And, you know, we pray about that every day. But one of our boys is on the run and has been for quite some time. Raised in the same home, given the same love, in the same environment, and yet has chosen to turn his back on Jesus at this stage of his life. And we're not okay with that. It wrecks us. And we pray. We pray for all four boys. We try to pray every day for all four boys. But I want you, to, as parents this morning, to know that it isn't over. It's never over. Keep influencing. Keep providing an environment. Keep connecting with them. Keep doing everything that you can. And keep going on your knees constantly on behalf of your kids. Whether they're doing really well or they're not doing really well. Well, the next place that unity and mutual submission has its challenges between people, especially between people who are following Jesus, is the workplace. See, many of you here this morning work for someone, or you have people working for you. So I I think this is going to hit a lot of us this morning. This next section really speaks to us. Let's first talk about the instructions to slaves or employees. Now, I, I just want to just, again, hit the button. Just, like, I, I'm not being cheeky here, okay? And I'm not, I'm not trying to be a jerk or anything like that. But I think as you see as the passage goes on, what Paul talks about in, with slavery actually is a very close um, crossover to employers or to employees for us today. The slave-master relationship, as outlined in Scripture, very much parallels the employee-employer relationship. And I hope that that comes clear. So I'm going to use them interchangeably this morning, but I want you to know that I'm doing that for a reason. We need to talk about slaves or employees, first of all. Now, not only is slavery foreign to most of us in this room, but our understanding of it has been determined by 19th century slavery in the U.S., and the two are not the same. In Paul's day, slavery was so much a part of everyday life And as many as one-third of the entire population in both Greece and Rome were slaves. One-third of the entire population. In Rome alone, there are estimates that there may have been as many as six million slaves in Rome in the first century alone. Now, people became slaves through various avenues. Birth, parental selling or abandonment, captivity from war, 
inability to pay debts, or voluntary attempts to make uh, their conditions or their own life circumstances better. Here's what you need to know. Race was not a factor. In the first century, race was not a factor. Life was hard for some slaves, but many were notoriously lazy and, and, and terrible liars. And the circumstances of the slave depended on the owner's attitude and the slave's response to those circumstances. But you see, here's the thing about slaves in the first century. Slaves could own property. Slaves could have slaves themselves. And many gained Roman citizenship through becoming a slave. And that was, for a lot of them, one of the major motivations to becoming a slave. Was if you then became the slave of a Roman master, you could buy Roman citizenship for yourself. And so the, the plan for a lot of people in Paul's day in the first century was this. I will become a slave. I will go work for a good master. And in doing that, I can earn Roman citizenship. And I can save money. And I can actually better myself. Then I can buy myself out of slavery and kind of be set for life. Right? It's like when your kids move home and start living with you. It's the same kind of thing. Right? <laughs> so Paul speaks into this situation. Not 12 years a slave. It's not the same. So this ancient text has much in common with today's employee-employer relationship. Here's what Paul says first to slaves in regards to unity and mutual submission. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Now Paul has to add the word earthly here because the Greek word for masters is kyrios, which actually is translated Lord, which in most of the New Testament refers actually to Jesus but, but this is also done for effect. Paul is very clever in his use of words. What Paul is trying to say is, slaves, obey your earthly masters. And he uses the same word that he often uses for Jesus' title because he wants them to get the, the picture. What he's trying to say to them is, obey your earthly masters in the same way that you obey Jesus. You look at your earthly masters the same way you look at Jesus. You respond to your earthly masters the same way that you respond to your heavenly master, Jesus. And if there's to be unity and mutual submission in the workplace, then the slave or the employee must show the proper respect toward their owner or their boss. That's what Paul is trying to say here. See, people would hang out in church together, just like we hang out in church together like this. And back in Paul's day, they would hang out in church together. But sitting in the congregation, you have slaves and masters. You know, you, you have this whole mix. And in church together, they've been talking about unity and mutual submission. And everything's great. And they're hanging out in connect groups together. And, you know, they're sharing stuff together. And, and then they go out in the lobby and they have coffee together. And then they go back to the workplace. And Paul doesn't want familiarity to breed contempt on the part of the slaves. And he says, you need to remember that they're your masters. So while you hang out in church and everything's cool and there's a level playing field, you know, in church, you need to remember that when you get back to the, the workplace, you need to show the proper respect for your owners and your bosses. He goes on in verse 5 to say this, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Paul next moves to the attitudes that slaves need to have. Slaves need to work with sincerity of heart. Slaves were instructed to be honest, to be forthright, to be genuine, to be serious, to be authentic when dealing with their masters or their employers. And I love how Paul adds this qualifier, just as you would obey Christ. 
What Paul is trying to get across here is that no matter what you do vocationally, all of us are involved in full-time Christian ministry. It doesn't matter what you do vocationally. We're all serving Jesus at the end of the day. Paul goes on in verse 6 and he says this, Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. See, I mentioned it a minute ago. In general, slaves in the first century were notorious for being lazy and for lying. And so Paul instructs those slaves who are followers of Jesus Christ to be countercultural. You know, he wants them to be conscientious workers. He wants them actually to stand out. You, you obey because it's right. That's what Paul is trying to say here. You obey because you're a Christian. You work hard and, and you're productive because you're a Christian. And you obey even when no one is watching you, even when no one is looking. I, I love how Paul puts that, you know, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. It kind of reminds me of high school. High school gym class, to be more specific. Remember being in high school gym class and the teacher would be like, okay, so everybody, you know, we got to do this kind of fitness assessment thing. We're going to see how many push-ups you guys can do. You know, so everybody, down, let's go. And so we'd be like down on the floor. And the teacher would be like, okay, I'm going to call them out and I want to see those chins down on the, you know, on the floor. So you're like, one, two, and you're looking, right? You're looking around where the teacher is. Three, and then the teacher's like way down at the other end of the gym and stuff. And you're like, four, Five, six, 19, 178. You can't count. A lot of kids are not that smart, right? It's the same kind of thing. It's the same, it's the same kind of thing. What Paul is saying is you work hard even when their eye is not on you. Even when no one's What's that called? Oh, character, right? Who you are when nobody's looking. So that's what Paul's trying to get across here. And then he goes on in verse 7, and he says, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Paul moves from mere obedience to something much more challenging. Slaves and employees are to serve wholeheartedly, enthusiastically, unreservedly, heartily, unconditionally. Like, do you see why if, if the slaves in Paul's day followed this, and they did, do you understand why the Jesus followers made such an impact on society in Paul's day? Is it any wonder that their witness was so strong in spite of difficult circumstances? See, in all four of these instructions to slaves, Paul has been emphasizing something. He's been emphasizing that it actually really isn't people that you serve. I mean, I know directly, you know, if you're a slave, you're working for your master or you're working for your boss. But you obey your master or you obey your boss like you obey Jesus. You respond to your master like you respond to Jesus. If we understand this short passage of Scripture properly, I think it calls us to a work ethic that is uncommon in many of our workplaces today. The onus is on us as followers of Jesus Christ, as Christians, to lead the way, to let our public work lives reflect a different work ethic, one that is theologically informed and shaped. So when the boss is not on the shop floor, when the teacher is out of the room, when you fill in the blank in your situation, what do we do? What is our response to followers of Jesus Christ? What scripture informs us here is you work The same way you work just as hard even when no one is looking, even when no one is watching. Why? Because you are serving Jesus at the end of the day. You don't do it for the boss. You do it for our Lord. 
But Paul now turns his attention to masters or to employers. In verse, first part of verse 9, it says this, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. You know, Paul does, uh, does this a lot in his writings. I don't know if you've noticed that. Paul does this a lot. You know, you're sitting there and you're listening to him, Paul talk about someone else. In this case, slaves. And you're like, oh, I'm not a slave. So Paul's like, oh, yeah, slaves, you got to work hard. And you're like, oh, yeah, mm, honey grunt again, right? You're like, oh, preach it, Paul. You tell those slaves how to do it. And Paul's like, oh, and slaves, even when the master's not around, you got to work hard. And you're like, oh, yeah, you tell them, Paul. You let those slaves have it. And then Paul comes along and he says, and masters, you do the same. <laughs> he just flips it right around. And you do the same. I think what Paul is really thinking back here to in his own mind is the teachings of Jesus on how we're to treat other people. Maybe this could be the managerial golden rule. Masters, owners, bosses, employers are asked to be sincere, to be trustworthy, to be honest, to be wholehearted with their slaves or their employees, to treat them the way you want to be treated. And then Paul goes on in the second part of verse 9, he says, And do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Paul's final appeal to masters and employers is a reminder of the level playing field at the cross. There's no favoritism with God. God loves all his kids the same, whether they're employees or employers, whether they're slaves or whether they're owners. I intentionally skipped over verse 8 because it's kind of just sandwiched in between the instructions to slaves and the instructions to masters. Verse 8 says this, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Verse 8 is the motivation that should keep us all going. Like what we do in the workplace really matters. And what Paul says here is, here's the motivation to do this. Here's the motivation to follow the, teachers, the teachings of Scripture when it comes to being a slave or a free person, an employee or an employer. The motivation is judgment. <laughs> motivation is judgment. Every one of us will one day stand before Jesus and be judged. Now, I just want to be really clear on this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, if you have you know, asked Jesus to, you know, to, to forgive you of your sins, if you've given your life to him, if you've crossed that line of faith, this is not a judgment of heaven or hell. But it will be a judgment. The scriptures are very clear on it, here and elsewhere, that everyone will stand before Jesus and have a conversation with Jesus. And that conversation is going to go something like this. So what did you do with everything that I gave you? Time, talents, abilities, finances. What did you do with your work life? What did you do in your family life? What did you do at church? And the list goes on and on. Every one of us is going to have a conversation with Jesus. And I think that these verses should be a sober reminder that how we conduct ourselves in our homes and how we conduct ourselves in our workplaces will not be exempt from that conversation. There are no exemptions. We can't compartmentalize and say, oh, well, Jesus, you know what? I don't want to have this conversation with you because that, like, that was my work. Like, that was work. That, you know, I, I worked there. Like, that really wasn't about what we're talking about, right? I think these verses fly in the, in the face of that and they say, oh, absolutely. Jesus wants to have a conversation about that stuff. 
And so here's what I want to do this morning, you know, just as we close. And Curtis and the team, you guys can come up and get ready to lead us in a, in a, a song of response. I want to pray for our homes. And I want to pray for our workplaces. I mean, it's where the passage goes. And so I would invite you, uh, you know, as Pastor John often says, to get in a posture, you know, where you're comfortable to be able to pray. Uh, you know, if you want to kneel, kneel. If you want to stand, stand. Cover your face. It doesn't matter. Whatever you posture you want to get into for prayer. And then I'm just going to pray for us in our homes and in our workplaces. And so I would invite you to join me as we pray. Um, so Jesus, you know, first of all, I just want to thank you for your scripture and the instruction that you give for everyday life and that it's just so practical in nature for us. So thank you. And I want to pray, first of all, uh, for Christian homes this morning. Jesus, you know, there's a world of hurt in Christian homes. But I pray that supernaturally by your spirit that you would begin to speak to parents and children. I pray, Jesus, that you would gently move us along a path to unity and mutual submission. I pray, Jesus, that, you know, even here at C4, that in Christian homes, there would be an environment for both parents and children to flourish. I pray, oh God, that children would learn to be obedient to their parents and to honor them. And I pray, God, that fathers and mothers, that we would not exasperate our children, but that we actually could bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. So, Lord, I pray. I pray for new life. I pray for a new freshness. I pray for a new work that we would learn to forgive one another and to love one another just the way you have called us to do. And then, Lord, I pray for our workplaces and for, for those who, uh, you know, as we pause for a second, for those who are unemployed and looking for employment, we pray for them, Lord. We pray that you would help them to find a job that, where they can serve you. But for other employment situations, I pray, God, that you begin to open our eyes to those difficult situations, to those perhaps wrong attitudes that some of us have held, whether we're employees or employers. Lord, it's, it's not about our rights. It's actually about your kingdom and your glory. And so, Jesus, would you help us to know what it means to say yes to you as Lord of our lives and help us to really make a countercultural stance in the world that we live in so that people can see Jesus clearly. And we ask all of this for his glory, for our freedom, so that the world will see Jesus clearly. Amen.